Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. William Knight. Hello, my name is Bill Knight, coming to you today with the National Stroke Education Center. Today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Matt Smith. Matt is a neurologist who is currently undergoing neurocritical care fellowship training with additional expertise and training in endovascular therapy. Matt is joining me today largely because, well, Matt, you were the lead author on one of the first uh, articles that came out uh, at the advent of our our COVID-19 pandemic, really looking at and and explaining kind of the best practice of, of patients requiring emergent endovascular therapy for stroke. I think leading off broadly, what can you speak to in terms of some of the lessons that you have learned as a, as a neurologist, a stroke specialist, an intensivist, and as an uh, interventionalist with all the different hats that you wear regarding the, the management of, of patients, um, both that I say would COVID positive or at risk for COVID, particularly as, it, as it's germane to the practitioners taking care of these patients? Thanks, Bill. Uh, the first thing that kind of became apparent to us back in early March we thought it was going to be really easy to know who had the coronavirus. We thought people would come into the emergency room for a stroke. We'd see them being dyspneic. They'd be febrile. We'd know, aha, right away, like, this person has the virus. We should wear N95s and mask up. Pretty early on in the pandemic, though, we realized we have no clue who has the virus. People are asymptomatic. And relatively shortly after that, there started being publications, um, a correspondence to the New England Journal of Medicine that Oftentimes, young people were presenting with stroke as their initial symptom of COVID-19. This has been shown in larger case series since then. But the biggest surprise and the most important things we learned is we need to consider every patient that comes into our hospital, stroke or not, and treat them as if they have the virus until proven otherwise. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the things that speaks to the management of, of the procedural areas in the hospital is that we don't, and, and with stroke, we don't have the luxury of, of getting a test and waiting for that result. What particular challenges, I, I would say, are germane to the angio suite in terms of where it is, who's down there, and then the different challenges that a, a stroke patient, while you're trying to perform a, a thrombectomy or any of the other uh, procedures that, that you may offer to a stroke patient, what is germane to that angio suite when you don't have that luxury of waiting for a test? Uh, that's a great question. And the, it, for emergent stroke therapy, it often comes back to the patient's airway. Stroke patients have difficulty protecting their airway. They're altered. They're not following commands. Um, they're usually having some form of respiratory stress when we lay them flat. A lot of times unhealthy people at baseline. And in the pre-COVID era, we just kind of rolled with that. We put people on high flow. We put them on a non-rebreather. Uh, we suctioned them throughout the procedure as needed. Their heads are taped down backwards with their neck extended, kind of the worst possible positioning for aspiration. And we would just deal with that as we went. And occasionally, um, people would start to aspirate, and we'd have to call an anesthesia. The patient would be intubated in the room. And we realized very early on that that just wasn't going to be acceptable, uh, not knowing somebody's COVID status, because we can't wait for a test to come back. This is an emergent procedure. We strive for a door-to-groin puncture time of less than an hour, an in-room time to groin puncture less than 10 minutes. And so we've had to start considering airway management prior to arrival in the endovascular suite. 
Do you currently recommend that all patients that come in for endovascular therapy for stroke be uh, electively or empirically intubated and mechanically ventilated throughout that procedure? Uh, I don't. There is conflicting evidence, um, even pre-COVID, on whether or not patients should be intubated for procedures. Some centers do it. They say it improves their first pass success rate. It does delay groin to reperfusion time. And, or it does delay door to reperfusion time. And I think the evidence on outcomes is still conflicting. So we as a center do not routinely intubate patients, but since the onset of the virus, we are now having a lower threshold to do so. If I suspect that a patient is gonna need frequent suctioning, if I suspect they're gonna need high flow nasal cannula, then we will ask our emergency room colleagues to intubate the patient prior to arrival in the angio suite. And that's something that's changed drastically. We used to just bring our patients to the angio suite where anesthesia would set up. Angio suite's a positive pressure room and it has a rapid turnover. We sometimes do strokes back to back to back and we don't wanna wait that 30 minutes for a room to cool down uh, before it's cleaned. So we ask that patients be intubated either in the emergency room or in a negative airflow room prior to arrival for the procedure if we go in that direction. I can imagine that down in the angio suite, there is a limited number of, of providers, both from the clinicians doing the procedure to the support staff from radiology and, and nursing. Are there any particular um, precautions that you all are taking for yourselves uh, in the advent of this pandemic? Absolutely. So in each of our angio rooms, we all have a brown paper bag uh, that has our N95 masks in it, uh, eye protection. Anytime a patient comes in now, we are gowning, uh, not just the surgical, the sterile operators, but the support staff gowning, putting on N95s and eye protection for every patient that comes in. Again, because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if that patient's going to start coughing. We don't know if they have COVID. Have, have you had to change any of your, your strategies for acute stroke? There had been both the, the medical implications of COVID causing thrombosis in addition to just the risk of exposure to the practitioners and to the patient themselves. But have you had to change any of your particular strategies for endovascular management of these strokes in the, in the era of this pandemic? So I would divide this into three portions, pre-procedural assessment, peri-procedural, and then post-procedural care. Peri-procedural care uh, is essentially the same. We use the same techniques. We use the same catheters. We do have less personnel in the room now. We've cut out some learners. We've cut out some support staff. And we just have the addition of extra personal protective equipment. Pre-procedural has changed quite a bit. Uh, there are less people in the emergency room. People are, you know, we're less likely to have stroke team members actually assessing a patient. We've relied on telemedicine. And we're trying to limit the number of trips that patients take. So instead of getting a head CT, getting TPA, getting a CTA. We're trying to do all the package all at once. So pre-hospital notification is key. It's very important for us to know from the EMS, a last normal, if it's greater than six hours, everyone's getting the CT, CTP, and CTA all in one shot, one trip to the CT scanner. Post-procedure has actually changed the most, um, particularly in regards with families. This is an emergency. Strokes are always unexpected. You know, this is not somebody's Eighth admission to the MICU for heart failure or COPD exacerbation. Most people are having their first stroke. And it used to be the case that every family member would be waiting directly outside our procedure room. And as soon as the procedure was over, the patient would be wheeled out. They'd be able to see them, hubs and kisses, follow us to the ICU and spend the night with the family. So what I have found helpful is immediate and clear communication with family members. I call every family before we start the procedure. I explain to them that they're not going to be able to see their loved one until the next day. I apologize for that. I try and emphasize how difficult that must be for them. 
And then post-procedure, um, it used to be a little bit more of the custom following the procedure, maybe see the patient once melt, melt away after that. I try and stay a little bit more involved with families so that they know, even though they're not here, somebody's taking care of their loved one and, and involved with them. That is fantastic. Something we, we probably all could take away from. Have you seen any direct medical uh, impact from the, the virus on patients presenting, meaning more patients given the increased thrombosis, less patients due to fear of coming to the hospital, time of day changes, more patients at night, more patients during the day as it pertains to, again, this high-level reperfusion of, of stroke patients? Yeah, so in, instead of reflecting on my own narrow experiences, I can speak to a little, a little bit about this on the national and international level. First of all, during peak pandemic, there was decreased in calls to stroke teams internationally. There was decreased use of automated stroke detection software, uh, pretty drastic decreases in this. Unfortunately, what was also seen, and there's uh, two great papers in this, one from, Europe, uh, one from the United Arab Emirates and one from New York, is the number of large vessel occlusions increased during this time. So you had fewer people coming to the hospital for strokes, but more severe strokes. And we don't know exactly the cause of this, but, but to me, the most likely reason is that people with smaller strokes were more afraid to come to the hospital, but COVID-19 was causing more of the severe large vessel occlusions from hypercoagulable states. That is fascinating. And, and certainly as we continue to evolve throughout this pandemic, I think both the lessons that learned in addition to the continued evolution of this disease will be critical to learn from this. And it's been great having you as a, a local expert as we've all um, built on top of this. Do you have any final thoughts as it pertains to the management of the stroke patient in the endovascular world, in uh, particularly germane to the COVID pandemic? My big takeaways would be that COVID-19 is not a contraindication for endovascular therapy or stroke treatment in general. Uh, we should continue to try and operate as best as we can with American Stroke Association guidelines and local institutional guidelines. Try and select your patients. They're going to have the best possible of reperfusion. Protect yourself and your staff and communicate well with families. Fantastic. This has been great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you all for listening. And this has been the National Stroke Education Center. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.